Okay, so welcome. Um, tonight is our last session, and we have some new things to talk about. And uh, if it works out, we're going to try kind of a, an experiment on the breakout groups. So hopefully you'll be game for it, and hopefully there will be enough people to make it meaningful. Um, so we've heard... We've talked, you know, quite a bit about these five qualities of faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. Um, we talked about them as forms of inner wealth and also as kind of nourishments that can be cultivated in practice. And, you know, a lot of these things are kind of different variations on the theme. Um, but there's sort of subtleties that I think are important to tease out. So... Um, I first wanted to ask, though, we'll go, we'll go on to another way of talking about them tonight. Uh, did anyone have uh, do some practice with them, like on the cushion or sort of feeling them energetically? That anything you want to share from that? Debbie? I, uh, I think because this meditation is I'm still rather new with new to the practice practice. Um, and I tend to think more than feel it more in my body. And I, that's all I did since last Wednesday was drop in each one throughout the day to feel it. And that was very helpful. Oh, good. And it, it was like an aha because as an ex primary retired primary school teacher, Everything was kinesthetic, so right. why I approached Buddhism intellectually befuddled me. <laughs> so that was a lovely way to feel the sources. Oh, great. I'm glad that you were able to connect in with them that way. Yeah, there's something about beginner's mind. We could, uh, we can definitely approach these as, as children and learn about them in many different ways. So, yeah, once and once you've kind of touched into that through any list, uh, you can do it with other ones also which I think you'll find valuable too. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, Carol Ann. Hi. Um, you know, the more I think about these, the more I realize how interrelated they are and that oh, there has okay. to be a balance between them. And that, nice. um, you know, when there's that balance, then there's that strength. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that's the right word, but there a strength or a, um, yeah, you know, That's weight a yep. to them, and that if one of them is weak, then then they're all kind of compromised. And, and I, I don't know. I've been thinking the last couple of weeks just about that, like how important that balance piece really is. Oh, um, that's so, fantastic. So that's great. Because the the. Um, there are other lists where that is explicitly named. It isn't really for this one, but I think it's true in general. But it is named, for example, for the five spiritual faculties and for the seven factors of awakenings that they all need to come together. And just as you said, if one of them is weak, it kind of takes away from the, the whole, essentially. So, yeah. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Leslie. Just a, a quick comment. Uh, Debbie, I don't know if you felt this, but we're both involved with uh, Gill's online retreat this week, uh, Deepening Meditation Practice, it's called. And I've found a wonderful synergy between both the teachings and the practices. 
and the depth of meditation experience of doing a six-hour retreat during the day each day this week. So it's just a do you feel that, Deb, also? Yes. And we're back for more, Kim. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, you came this point. evening. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. These are beautiful comments. And yeah, our method of engagement can be one that's kind of like um, resonance or you know, mutual enhancement when we're doing different aspects of the Dharma. Well, great. So um, you had the essay on learning to read for today. But first, I wanted to mention what, this other dimension of these five as Dharma resources. Um, one more way that we might think about them as resources. So there's a, a story uh, that a Zen master was once asked to sum up Zen in one phrase. And he said, an appropriate response. And so the idea there is that when the practice has kind of gone into our heart or into our being, uh, then we would naturally respond appropriately to situations. It would be kind of available to us. And, you know, responding appropriately, I think, doesn't mean uh, the socially acceptable way uh, necessarily. It means in a wise and compassionate way. So that might be conventional or it might not in certain situations. It might be the same or it might be different. And it doesn't mean that we think about it and then apply a principle. Oh, here's what I, here's what Buddhism says I should do in this case, or here's what, you know, the, the list of rules this one would apply in this case. Uh, instead, it's meant to be a little bit more spontaneous than that, is that we would come forth with an appropriate response. Um, probably there are many ingredients in that mix, but my suggestion is that these five Dharma resources could be seen as some of the things that the heart uh, draws upon in order to make an appropriate response in the moment, if you will. So this could happen on the cushion. It could happen in daily life. Um, there's kind of a difference between a deliberate you know, volitional, I've thought about it and here's what I want to do response and something that's a little bit more spontaneous or non-volitional. So I guess maybe I should say something about what I mean by non-volitional because that can sound a little odd sometimes. But what I I really mean is that is to to point out that there is a non-volitional side to the Dharma and all of you have actually encountered it in that if you're a mindfulness practitioner and you're sitting on the cushion trying to be aware of what's happening in the present moment, I know that we are not there 100% of the time. (laughs) And, you know, we wander off and then we come back. So the question is, what makes you come back? You're gone. (laughs) There's nothing, there's nothing uh, that you could be doing volitionally to decide to be in the present moment again. At some point, you wake up and you realize, oh, right, I'm meditating. I'm supposed to be on the breath or whatever it is. And that is what? An act of grace? Something. Uh, no, it's conditioned. Um, mindfulness is conditioned by prior moments of mindfulness and by the intention to have mindfulness. But that operates without your deliberately choosing that. So we all have this experience in mindfulness practice that um, there's something, something operating that's not our 
own volition. Our volition matters, absolutely. Our intentions matter. Wise intention is a step of the Eightfold Path. But there's something else going on also. Um, I don't want to belabor that too much, but, it, but it's, you know, it's broader. It's broader than that. It's also fairly common for Dharma practitioners to discover that um, something in their life has changed without having to specifically work on it. Like, for example, maybe you started a morning sitting practice focusing on the breath. And then a few months later, you discover yourself sitting at a work meeting and you find that you used to be um, very frustrated and impatient, but you're actually sitting there quite patiently. And you're, you realize that you can be there with that. It's, you know, it's irritating, but you're not getting as upset as you used to. And I would say that's because of the morning meditation practice, but you didn't deliberately have to practice working with patients, you know, really focusing and deliberately um, being better at, at sitting through meetings. Uh, it just sort of came about as a byproduct. There are also things that we cultivate and work on. I'm not dismissing that side of practice. But anyway, I would suggest that there's uh, some kind of a process whereby our volitional cultivation of certain things like mindfulness, like loving kindness, like patience, like concentration, our, our, our volitional cultivation of those has um, other impacts. And it's kind of um, creating non-volitional resources that will be available to us at other times in other situations. This is an important aspect of Dharma practice to start trusting that this happens, actually, and to, to not think that we need to be in charge of every single thing that's going on in our practice. Maybe that has something to do with trust or faith, first of the resources. So I also wanted to just offer some examples of, you know, how do these five resources serve as something that the heart draws on as an appropriate response so I thought of an example that's described in a book called uh, Rude Awakenings. I don't know if you've read this book. It's a fantastic book. It's actually um, The Adventures of Ajahn Suchito. Some of you know him and his lay steward, Nick Scott, when they were traveling in India to visit some of the Buddhist holy sites. They went to northern India and they walked. They wanted to walk like the same way the Buddha did. So here they were, a monk and his lay supporter, uh, walking through northern India, and this is the some excerpts from their travel journals that they wrote during this journey. And it's interesting also because they were completely what's called the odd couple. So someone called them that. And they have very different characters and personalities, but they were trying to get along and um, do this somewhat challenging pilgrimage together. This was like 20 years ago, something like that. But still, it's not easy to walk through northern India. Um, anyway, so what's relevant for this is that they got themselves in a bad situation and they were going through a forest and a perennial problem with Indian forests are bandits. This is described in the Pali Canon, um, but they, they actually ran into some real life bandits in one of the few remaining Indian forests. And, you know, they're walking with a backpack and a water bottle. You know, they didn't have that much. And somehow they, you know, they fled and they got separated and then Gajan Suchicho fell down and then um, kind of picked himself up. And somehow he looked up and there was a guy with an ax standing over him, uh, you know, for real. And he's a monk. He doesn't have anything. And in that moment, you know, what would you do in that moment? 
what he did was he uh, just bowed his head forward and he put his you know, shaven head uh, toward the guy. And he just sat there. And the guy realized this was not what he wanted to do, having this head offered to him. And he backed off and Ajahn Tuchito didn't get killed. But I would say that was drawing on the resource of trust or faith. You know, it's like I have nothing. I have nothing. So you know, we'll just, you just surrender. And it worked. And they did manage to escape and various other things came about. But, you know, that's a moment where you see what will happen, what will come forth. I guess I, I think now also about... Um, Bhante Gujaratana, uh, I know some of you know him, Bhante G. He's at a monastery, I think, in West Virginia, somewhere out there. Um, and he was in a plane one time, and uh, um, something bad happened to the plane. There was a big bump, and he looked out the window, and there was smoke coming out of the wing. And the captain came on and said, we're going to have to make an emergency landing. And, you know, what you don't want to hear in an airplane. And various people were having all kinds of panicked reactions about him. And what his mind went to was, well, I've lived a virtuous life. I guess this is an okay time. I don't have any regrets. So, you know, reflection on virtue, just like we read about it in the last reading, right? When he reflects on virtue, his mind settles down. It's not absorbed in greed, hatred, and delusion, so that was what came to mind for him. Strong practice, you know, that was what came up. Or sometimes um, two of the resources work in tandem. I, I found a sutta where there's a Brahmin uh, talking with the Buddha about uh, remembering the hymns. And so Brahmins back in that time long ago um, were practicing kind of a form of proto-Hinduism. Proto it wasn't fully formed yet. But a lot of it involved memorizing and chanting and reciting Vedic hymns and also doing some rituals. Um, and uh, this, this Brahmin named Sangarava says to the Buddha, Master Gotama, what is the cause and reason why sometimes even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited? And what is the cause and reason why sometimes those hymns that have not been recited over a long period recur to the mind, let alone those that have been recited? So it's like, why can't I remember things sometimes, um, even if I've studied them for a long time? And why can I sometimes remember things that I haven't even studied that much? And so the learning is there. This person has put effort into reciting you know, the hymns. So that's sort of the foundational part. So we have learning. But then the Buddha's reply is interesting. He says to Sambhava, well, it's because when you have the any one of the five hindrances in your mind, then you won't be able to remember. So the hindrances are uh, sensual desire, ill will, uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. So if your mind is occupied with any of those five things, you can't remember stuff very well. Whereas if the mind is um, clear and not uh, overcome by those five things, then you can remember things quite easily. And so there we have learning in uh, coordination with virtue because when the mind is in a wholesome state, it doesn't have five hindrances in it. Um, so, you know, this allows the mind to access what it needs in a given moment.
Now you can see this for yourself. Don't don't believe what this text says. Check it out for yourself if you're really agitated. Do you remember things easily? Um, maybe maybe some people can kind of force themselves into it um, sometimes. But generally, if we're overcome by any one of these, the mind doesn't function as well. Um, and then there's uh, also cases like um, uh, I remember one time I. Uh, broke a glass and what came to mind immediately was uh, something I'd read in a book by Ajahn Chah that said where he, he, uh, there was a time when he held up his cup teaching people, he held up his cup and he said, for me, the cup is already broken. And what he meant was, you know, I'm not attached to my cup because it's going to break someday and I won't be upset because that's what cups do. So when the glass broke, this line came to my mind. Oh, the glass is already broken. You know, the glass is now broken, something like that. So I had this teaching, the reminder of impermanence. So that's wisdom coming to mind. I mean, I could have, um, you know, emitted some foul language or something, which maybe happens at other times. But, um, you know, and that's, it's a little bit different when it just comes spontaneously than when I break the glass and then think, Okay, what would be a good dharmic response to this? Oh, impermanence. That's what I should do. You know, it's different. So, you know, we have these, um, maybe you can think of examples like this from your own life. I don't know where these five are being drawn upon in moments where we need them and they just sort of, um, you know, the heart can spontaneously draw upon them. So this is what I mean by this phrase, an appropriate response and how these dharma resources might serve in that way. So um, let's pause for a moment and see if anybody has any questions or comments on that at this point. Uh, Yeah, uh, Robin, I see your hand first and then Josh. Okay, can you hear me okay? Okay. Two, two points from what you've just been speaking of, which I have found very pleasant, I might say. Um, you were think you were expressing that perhaps this was because of practice that a person might find some of these resources arising in unanticipated ways. I'm curious about your your reflections of um where would this have come from originally, these, these resources? Uh, before we're practicing, what would, what would, how would they arise for us, I guess, is what I'm asking. Are you asking if they're kind of present anyway without cultivation? I don't know. I, I'm just, I, I don't know. I, I don't I know see. where they're coming from. What would draw me to these originally? Um, I, I guess that's what I'm asking. Okay. Um, well, I guess um, there's a couple things that come to mind because I'm still not in, uh, entirely clear. Um, there are qualities of mind that the Buddha, I mean, he says that they're kind of there anyway, but we would, we need to cultivate them in order to bring them forth and make them more available. Like there are suttas about the five faculties, um, five spiritual faculties, which are actually just faculties that every mind has. Um, it's a similar list, but slightly different. Those are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. 
those are the five faculties. And he never says you've got zero of them until you've done any Dharma practice. He says, actually, all of these are present in any normal human brain or mind. We use them for learning skills. And but when we cultivate them and turn them toward our spiritual practice, then they get integrated with that part of our heart and they become available as resources um, in various ways. So I would say these five are kind of like that. Um, and there's, you know, there's some capacity for all of them that we've been cultivating earlier, but there are ways that we can turn them toward spiritual practice and have them become more available. That's one aspect that comes to mind, but I may not have hit exactly what you were pointing to. So does that help? Um, does that help or should, should we continue? It's, um, it's something for me to reflect on what uh-huh. you're saying. And is this the, that you're talking about the same wisdom in that setting as well as in this setting here where we're talking about the wealth resources? Uh, yeah. The, okay. We all have some form of wisdom. Um, we, we have to. It, wisdom is really just experiential knowledge of some kind. And we've all learned, you know, we start learning that as a child where we learn that when we touch the hot stove, it really hurts and we'll never touch it again <laughs> in the same way. I mean, that's a little tiny piece of experiential wisdom. Um, and so it does continue. And we can point it, we can you know, cultivate it in particular areas that might actually be liberating for the mind. I mean, touching, not knowing not to touch the stove is going to protect the body, but it doesn't have much to do with awakening. But understanding impermanence or not self or other such things, that's a, a different application of wisdom that can uh, have more profound effects for us. So there's different each of these is kind of a, a range of things. Does that make some sense? Yes, thank you. Thank you for that additional clarification. Thank you very okay. much. Yeah. Great. So um, I wanted to talk now a little bit about the, remember I said each time we're going to talk about the Dharma resources and some kind of a study method. And so the study method for this time is to take a certain topic and follow it like a thread through the Pali Canon. So we, and, and that is what you have with that learning essay. So in a sense, you know, one could say, well, you know, this is kind of an intriguing list of five and learning is in the middle of it. I don't see learning in a lot of other lists. What does that really mean? So you do kind of a search and you uh, follow the thread of learning through the various suttas. You don't have to get all of them, but you know, you just see uh, what does this term mean? How else is it used? In what context is it used? <clears throat> How is it recommended to practice with it? All kinds of questions can come up. Um, and you don't have to write a p- paper about it like I did. <laughs> That's just, that would be kind of an extreme version. But I wanted to show, um, you know, how a thorough application of that looks. So, and sometimes it can be a little bit surprising, like a term that we think we know what it means because we've just looked at the English word. Um, we might realize, oh, the Pali term is actually a little more subtle. It doesn't have just one English term that translates it. And so as you explore the sort of space around a given term, um, you know, you, you realize, oh, it's not quite uh, how I imagined it in English, something like that. So uh, I've done this with learning, and it was done in the context of the um, three types of wisdom that 
uh, Josh kind of conveniently brought up last time. Thanks for that. That was a nice little introduction. Um, and so I just wanted to talk through, you know, a few things. Uh, learning is kind of a, of course, it's a wider concept than just the first one is named in the first type of wisdom, Sutta Mayapanya Sutta. Um, but it's, uh, it's more broad than that and, and touches into the other two types of wisdom that are named, the reflective wisdom and the experiential wisdom. So um, I just want to highlight a few points from the essay and then we'll uh, have a chance to, you can ask questions or we'll talk more about it. So our list of five comes up early on. It comes right around the end of the first page or beginning of the second. And then there's some unfolding of the meaning of that. And you may see that the definition of learning that I give in the middle of the second page comes from that very first reading we had about wealth. It's from the Wealth Sutta where it says, here a noble disciple has learned much, remembers what they've learned, and accumulates what they've learned. Such teachings as these, they have recited verbally and mentally investigated and penetrated well by view. So, um, but just below that, so we start out with this kind of nice view of what learning, sutta, S-U-T-A, means, not related to S-U-T-T-A. Um, but just below that, we see a problem that's even named today uh, among educators, which is the problem of transferring our book knowledge into something that's practicable. And, you know, this is talked about um, even now in modern pedagogy. And the Buddha specifically in that sutta praises, in one of the suttas, he praises the ability to transfer, regardless of whether or not we have little or much learning. He um, praises the what he calls being intent on what we've learned, which means that we uh, apply, we figure out ways to apply it and use it and make it um, integrated into our understanding, essentially. And then, um, and then right after that, I talk about some ways that intellectual learning is related to the two other types of wisdom. In fact, there's a case where a monk asks him about intellectual learning and he says yes it's nice but you should go on and also do these other uh, deeper types and I think I mentioned that there's the impression that maybe there was somebody who was very overly intellectual as a monk and he was trying to point them towards something a little bit deeper but then there's a section um, uh, what's it called then we get to the section called um, limitations of the cognitive mind and there we see that there's an acknowledgement that there is much more to the Dharma than what the thinking mind can comprehend. So we have in particular this line, uh, this Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. So that line is uh, it's said more than once in the teachings, but the, one of the first places it's said is in the sutta where the Buddha describes his own awakening uh, in the first person, uh, MN26. And th that was actually his excuse um, not to teach right after he woke up is that he was a little reluctant to teach. And this is one of the reasons he's like, this is hard to see. People are tangled up in, you know, everyday life. So we had gotten to this Dhamma is profound, unattainable by mere reasoning. So we can see that this is 
you know, beyond what our intellectual thinking mind can know ultimately. And yet um, there is a role for this kind of intellectual learning and using of the cognitive mind. And so I suggest in the essay that there's some idea of resonance um, where we can set up a resonance between the kind of learning that we have at the more surface level using the uh, linguistic cognitive type mind, and that it will inform, it can inform the deeper layers through our very understanding of the Dharma, through our shaping of our mind to have these Dharma qualities. Um, a little bit like what was uh, asked earlier um, by Robin, who I don't see back. Okay. Um, yeah, and how we're kind of taking these in, making them part of our system through intellectual learning, but then they kind of resonate down deeper and they support uh, the more experiential types of knowledge. So I think that, you know, the Buddha was skilled at uh, training people's minds. That was his job. And he had a way of not really re not rejecting um, aspects of the mind, even if they're not ultimately useful for awakening. So, the, you know, he found ways to use the cognitive mind in, through meditation, through reflection, through recitation, through learning in daily life practice, even though it's ultimately not going to do it for us. So sometimes I like to emphasize this because sometimes people think they need to excise this part of their mind or that there's nothing helpful uh, in thought at all. And fair enough, you know, awakening is beyond our our small thinking mind and we're going to have to at some point uh, unseat it from its position of conceit that it's the most important thing in our mind. Uh, but still, you know, we can... Uh, use its strengths, let's say, and hone it into a form where it can actually serve insight. So that was a little bit what I was trying to convey in the paper. So we might consider for ourselves, you know, is there, um, is there, how do you hold cognitive learning in your practice? You're in a sati-centric course, so maybe it has some place, um, but, you know, is it something that remains separate and heady, um, or is it all that you do? There's a phenomenon uh, called nightstand Buddhists. And these are people who have a, a Dharma book sitting on their nightstand and they read a little bit every night. And that's um, mostly their engagement with it. And it's, you know, I don't condemn that. It's a fine beginning or uh, a way that sometimes people will do that for 10 years and then think, hey, maybe I should go to a Dharma center or something. Um, so nightstand Buddhists. Um, but I think ultimately we want to integrate our cognitive learning with our cushion practice and maybe including retreat practice at some point. So, you know, I've heard that from some of you a little bit. That's what Debbie was saying at the beginning about finding the way in through uh, starting with some intellectual, but then also realizing, oh, wait, I can feel these more kinesthetically. So I think we all find our pathway in. Um, and for some, the pathway in starts with the cognitive mind. And I think that's fine. But I do recommend becoming more integrated over time, let's say. So what do you think? What are your thoughts on this, the, um, the essay, or if you have any questions on it or on the role of learning? I, I'd like to say something. Um, yeah, I haven't I really spoken yet. And that is, uh, I don't know, when I, when I first started 
reading about you know Eastern philosophy and Buddhism in the nineties. It was at, after my first attempt at college. I wasn't you know very. I was a very poor student. Um, but I happened to have an advisor who was in the religious studies department where I was um, when I'm back in St. Louis when I returned to St. Louis. But he said something, or he, or I read somewhere in one of his one of the uh, texts that's like um, about um, getting into Buddhism to really kind of experience it. It's, it's almost like you have to be like a guy with your hair on fire needing a lake to jump into, and that kind of idea. Like you're, I mean, I. I can read the stuff and read the stuff. That's great. And it's fun to intellectualize, but there's, you have to have, and and life probably for everybody throws that need at you at some point. Maybe that's just a thought. I mean, I don't know what, Mm. if other people have experienced that or not, but. Well, yeah, I think that's a, um, let's say one of the ideals of how practice comes about is that we, we get, um, inspired at some point yeah. and it, it could be it can actually be for like a positive devotional kind of uh inspiration where we really feel drawn to it it feels just so nourishing or healthy in some way and or we're looking some people have a little bit of tinge in there where they're looking for the bliss or something like that mm. but um but and for some people it comes from the other side from suffering you know uh you get a di- a terminal diagnosis or um there's a terrible disruption in your life of some kind lose your job uh, somebody dies um, get divorced whatever it is um, and that propels a person to say wow you know I I was you know that my my world has been turned upside down what's going to help and so and then practice really takes on a lot more meaning but you know I don't advocate uh having these experiences if we if yeah. they, they'll come anyway but, right they um, definitely come i think my i sorry to interrupt that number i think they right. definitely I, my understanding is that life we all get thrown curveballs because we don't absolutely. always absolutely that's part know, of the, we don't always find the middle path right away particularly when we're young adolescents or whatever then we have to kind of you know we get life kind of hits you in the face and you kind of find your way back and like Hopefully you have something like Buddhism or a Sangha to kind of, you know, but I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that was just a thought because it seems to me anyway, you know, you know, it, I don't know. I, I'm, I mentioned in one of these groups that, um, you know, someone asked me like, what's my great achievement? And I said, you know, I'm 52 years old and I'm still here. You know, that's, a big, in my opinion, a big achievement. And then and there was one guy who was particularly, you know, much older than I was. And he was, he was like, he, he, it struck a chord with him. It was like, yeah, you know, I, I totally get that, you know, because, you know, just to be alive that long, you, you know, sometimes you veer from the path, but like you will feel the impact of, you know, your past experiences. And, and if you have something like Buddhism, then you maybe you are more likely to take it seriously. This is yeah. Uh, I think I think the practice works in mysterious ways. You know, we engage with it maybe intellectually or maybe maybe there are also people who sit for three decades and they've never read a sutta. You know, it's like they, they don't they don't feel drawn to that. And there's so many doorways in and um, it will impact us in some way and help us to handle our life or integrate our knowledge or discover gratitude for just being here you know that we didn't have before so i think um 
I have a pretty open attitude about how people get into the practice, but it is true that at some point, if you, it will take some effort to plumb the, the deeper depths of it, let's say it that way. And where that inspiration comes from um, is a little mysterious. You know, sometimes you meet a person or you have a life event or you, you know, you get older and something. Um, but, you know, I think, I think people are on, people are on so many different paths toward doing that. So I, I'm, I'm, is that helping? Is that, how does that I, sound? I, I think so. Okay. I just wanted to add my uh, two cents. Uh-huh. And I, I, I benefit often more by listening, but I just felt uh-huh. like saying that. Yeah. No, it's great. It's all going in somehow. Yeah. 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 Thank you. And thank you for your presence here. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rajesh. Yeah. If you don't mind, uh, just based on what Alex just said and what you said, uh, it kind of, I guess my experience is somewhat different. And so I just wanted to mention it. Uh, I come from Vedantic background. Mm-hmm. And uh, things didn't go well. And I was looking for something. And I, I started attending a Buddhist temple. They call it a temple. I don't know if you may have heard of it. It's called the Dharma Bum Temple. <laughs> oh, in San Diego. I've yes. heard of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they're very basic and, you know, and I started attending those and, uh, and I must tell you, I couldn't make head or tail of it. It's like all these lists and I got a book and I said, this doesn't make sense to me at all. I was totally, totally lost. Okay. And, uh, but for some reason, because I guess I was looking for something and, and because so many people seem to be so enamored with Buddhism, I persevered. <laughs> and then Jan Thanissaro sometimes gives them talks there. And the first time around, you know, it was the same thing. Second time around, the same. Then the third time around, something just struck me. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> right. And then I started attending his Metaphorist meetings. Mm-hmm. And I got attracted to it, but didn't totally make sense. I couldn't still grasp it. And then I just started listening to talks. Right? And I must tell you, there were moments, ah, I got it. <laughs> right? So these... There was a deepening of the understanding. In other words, I understood what he was saying intellectually, but not at a deep level. I think that's mm-hmm. what he's talking about. And there were a couple of times when I'd be going for a jog and listening to him. And I got it. I understand it. And I'd come away, I think, somewhat at a deeper level. And, and I think that's what you're mentioning. And, and that's, that's kind of important to me because it kind of gives credit it, it adds to credibility for the process as it happened with me. Yeah, it's a gradual, a gradual training. Um, there's one analogy given of walking into the ocean and it slopes down gradually and you just kind of go deeper and deeper. And yeah, it can be like that. Yeah, so it is quite different than, you know, what 
I think Alex was saying, as the way I understand it. Yeah, I think if probably there's 16 different methods in this room, however many people there are, there's, um, yeah. Yeah, thank you for um, for offering that. Thank you. Yeah, and if you don't mind, it's just one more thing, because what I'm finding is, you know, now I've been listening to talks from the IMC, you know, because I heard about the IMC pretty recently. And what I'm finding is when I hear a talk by, let's say, Gil or by somebody else or, you know, Guy, Andrea, I'll come back to it maybe a month later and have a totally different meaning. And, and yeah, find that process very interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, it does change. Uh, Rose, I've seen your hand a couple of times. Do you want to uh, say something? <sighs> Sorry, well, I didn't see it earlier. Well, since you called on me, um, <laughs> I was going to lower my hand. Oh, okay. You don't have to, but if you want well, to. Well, it, it's, it's, I know I don't have to, but um, I'll just say briefly that I was going to tell my story. You said there were 16 of them. I'm sure there are. <laughs> I don't know that but, we have time uh, for 16, but. Uh... Right. <laughs> so, you know, I'd just like to say that um, the going to IMC and hearing, um, Hearing the suttas talked about and going to some of the classes that Gil taught um, has made a huge difference in my practice. Because up until that point, I was uh, I was in San Francisco. I am in San Francisco, and um, at that, I was doing meditation with the Soto Zen Zen Center, mm-hmm. yeah. and I was I you know I. When I went to I, when I, a friend took me to IMC and said, Oh, this is a great place. You have to come here. <laughs> so it just made a huge difference because of the learning, you know, and it put meditation in a context. And I just understood so much more about what Buddhism was about yeah. rather than just sitting, you know, which is what I had been doing. And, uh, I really appreciate Soto Zen though too. I mean, yeah. but in a in a different way than in a before. Way. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So. Well, I think all of these stories we're hearing are pretty much testaments to a little bit what's, you know, what's said in the paper that learning and study and getting the context somehow as a place in the path of deepening our practice. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can Everyone here probably understands that we're not going to think our way into awakening, but nonetheless, the context makes a difference and it can inform what goes on on the cushion and uh, the other reflections that we do. So thank you for that. I appreciate those comments.